we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Do you remember as a child what it was like to receive a letter? Do you all remember letters, those things, paper? You kind of remember that? Yeah. You remember how excited? I remember as a young kid how excited I was when the mailman would come and I would go running down the driveway to the mail, just, throw, just hoping to find something with, with my name on it. You remember that excitement? Uh, I remember in fourth grade I had a pen pal in Germany uh, because Germans are smart. They teach their kids more than one language. So this German could write in English and we struck up a, a pen pal relationship. And I remember it was so odd. It was so funny because uh, you would write this letter and you would put a stamp on it, put it in the mailbox, and then you had to wait for like an entire month to get a response, right? It's kind of like when I email y'all. <laughs> it's funny in our day and age of digital communication, instant communication, right? Uh, we, we've kind of lost the art of letter writing. Uh, we, there's something durable. There's something powerful special about letters. We, we've kind of lost the art of that. But even though we've lost the art, we still know its significance. We, we still feel the power of a letter. Today we start a brand new series called Dear Friends, and it's a study of a letter that was written from an old man to Christians. A letter that is, in fact, written not just to the Christians of his day, but to the Christians throughout the centuries. It's a letter that's written from him to you and to me, and we have it in the Bible. It's known, it's called 1 John. As part of this series that we're starting on 1 John, we're we're actually just going to be preaching through that book of the Bible, and we're going to be reading it together as a church. And if you've never read the Bible on your own, this is a great place to start, or maybe you've been reading it on your own for a long time. But we have something, a gift for you, called a soap journal. These are available in the back in the lobby after the service. This is a simple guide that can help you read through the book of John over these coming weeks together with us. Soap stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. And this is the way you can read so you don't have to only hear what does the preacher think about 1 John, but what do you think about 1 John and how might God actually speak to you through this 2,000-year-old inspired letter. Well, I want to begin by setting us up a little bit for this series. I want to tell you a little bit of background on who this John was. Uh, John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He was also the last one to die, the only one to die of natural causes, we believe. All the others were martyred for their faith. Uh, We think John lived to uh, about the age of 95, maybe 97 at its latest. Uh, John was a constant companion of Jesus in his youth. Uh, John went everywhere with Jesus. He was with Jesus in the upper room when they had that last meal together. Uh, He was there at the cross, standing next to Mary when Jesus was hung on that cross. He he was the first, well, actually the second. Mary beat him to the empty tomb. But you'll remember Peter and John go running, and he beats Peter. He was the second person to see the empty tomb. And John was there when Jesus reappeared to them as the resurrected Lord. John was a constant companion of Jesus. But there's this one scene that's really striking, kind of characterizes his relationship. Uh, When Jesus was hanging on the cross in his final hours, he looked at John and he said, John, I want you to take care of my mother. One of Jesus' last fears was what was going to happen to Mary. And so he said, Mary, this is your new son. John, this is your new mother. 
And John took that charge very, very seriously. We know that John cared for Mary for many decades, uh, and we believe that it was after Mary's death that John eventually moved to Ephesus. He may have moved there when Mary was in her final years. But Ephesus at the time was the third largest city in the ancient Roman world. Uh, Mary Rob and I actually got to visit it a couple years ago and, and walk these streets. It is incredible uh, to, to be walking and realize that this is where the Apostle Paul walked. This is where John walked. Th- these are real people in real history, and we have their very words preserved for us in the scriptures. Now, here's what's really interesting. At the end of John's life, uh, towards the very, very end, John decides that he needs to sit down and do some writing. He's got some stuff that he wants to capture with pen and paper. And we actually have five books of the Bible that were authored by John. The first is the Gospel of John. That's his biography of Jesus. Uh, And then there are three letters, very uh, originally and cleverly named, 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John. I'll, I'll let you guess which letter was written first. Uh, then, then finally, he, he is exiled to an island for his final, final years, and he is actually the one who gave us the book called Revelation, God's Revelation to John. Now, John was well into his old age when he began this writing, uh, and he probably had to rely on some others for help. Uh, either just with the physical uh, work of writing. He did not have a word processor to do this. Siri did not receive his dictations. So he had some help. Maybe he had the help of some editors, uh, and that can account for a little bit of linguistic difference in some of these writings, but the ideas and the themes are consistent. Now, sometimes we can romanticize the early church and think that everybody you know, in, in that time, well, they were just so holy and so righteous. They were such great people. But John will not let us believe that lie. John had seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church. But he loved the church still. And he writes this letter with this honest, deep love. And there's one phrase that rings over and over and over. It is, dear friends. And that's our series. Now, John pulls no punches, and one of the tricky things about reading John's letter, if if you decide to read it with us, one of the things that can often be frustrating is that John seems to kind of dance and jig and spin around. He's not linear like Paul. If Paul had written this letter, it would be point one, point two, therefore point three. That's kind of how Paul writes, right? Not John. He, he, he's, what brain is that? He's totally right-brained, right? He's going to jig over here, dance over there. In fact, one, uh, one scholar says that John is much more akin to a modern-day rapper, right? He's going to riff on different themes, which means that at times when we're reading John, in the words of Run DMC, it can be tricky. Tricky, 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 tricky. That's for all my fellow children of the 80s. If you don't get that reference, I'm sorry. There's actually a fascinating example. I don't have this on the slide or my notes. So there's one example we heard read this morning. And this is just how John works. Like he'll, he'll, he'll write something like, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Now, when you sin, here's what I want you to do, right? And it's like, John, what, which is it? Like, and, and yet both of these, John says, are true. And he wants us to hold and live in this tension because John wants us to work for it. John wants us to wrestle with this letter. He wants us to chew on it until it begins to release its nutrients to us. And at the very end of his letter, though, at the very end of his letter, he makes it plain and clear exactly 
what his purpose is. And I want to begin with this before we jump into the passage. This is the big goal for John in his letter. He writes this to you and me. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life with God, both now and forever. So what does this mean? If you are a Christian here today, or if you ever decide to become a Christian, putting your faith and trust in Jesus, if you are a Christian, does John want you to be more scared or more sure? Does John want you to be more uncertain or more certain? Does John want you to be more scared or more sure? Sure, right. That's what he wants. He wants you to know. He wants you to have confidence. He wants you to have a peace that you are at peace with God. That's his goal. To grace us, to gift us with this deep assurance that we have eternal life. Now, some of y'all grew up in churches where uh, this, well, this was not the case. In fact, you kind of... You did that thing where every Sunday when they had the altar call, you, you just went every Sunday just in case last Sunday didn't stick, right? Or, or, or maybe, some of y'all know, or maybe you got baptized so many times, they put a locker with your name on it for your bathing suit in the bathroom, right? I mean, I mean we can live with this fear, right? And so I said, I want you to know. I want you to have peace, that you're at peace with God. That's the purpose of his letter, and we need to hold that before us. Because John's going to take us on a wild ride. So with that in mind, I want to jump in today, and we're going to look at the first chapter of this letter, and I'm going to walk just verse by verse. So if you're a note taker, this is you're going to love this sermon today. It's, we're just going line by line. And I want to unfold and see if we can listen to John's 2,000-year-old rap and see if we can uncover what it is that he's trying to say to us. We game? All right, here we go. We're going to jump in verse 5 is where we're going to start. If you do not own a Bible, you can take one of ours as a gift to you today. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and following. Let me start there. This is the message we have heard from him. Who is him? Jesus. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Right at the beginning, John wants to present us with this truth, this theme. God is light. In other words, God is good. He is purely good. There's not an ounce of evil in him. One of the interesting storylines in the scriptures throughout the Bible is this kind of dilemma, this battle, this cosmic conflict between light and darkness. I don't know what you think of when you think of light and darkness. I start to, my mind starts to go to like the Discovery Channel. You know, I instantly go to physics and astronomy. But the Bible doesn't talk about light and darkness in physical terms primarily. Light and darkness in the scriptures are moral terms. And so apparently what's happening here is there's a conflict. Listen to the way the Hebrew author describes it at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And then God speaks. And what does he say? Let there be light. He counters the darkness with light. God is the light bearer. God is the light bringer. That's why John begins his gospel describing Jesus as the light that has entered into the darkness. Darkness represents chaos 
and evil and the absence of good. So when Jesus comes into the world, it is a light that enters the darkness and what? The darkness cannot overcome it. You see the conflict, the tension? As John begins this section of his letter, there is a profound claim that he makes right here at the beginning. God is light. God is good. There is not one drop of evil in him. Now you might say, Aaron, that is fine and dandy, but what's the big deal? Well, apparently in John's day, in the city of Ephesus, this ancient metropolis, there were some alternative alternative ideas about who God actually is or what God's character was like. There were some who were calling into question God's character. If God exists, is he actually good? Or is he more capricious and unpredictable like the Greek gods? Or maybe he's sneaky and vindictive like the Canaanite gods. Or maybe he's just sitting there waiting for me to screw up so that he can bring some kind of calamity on me. You see, John wants us to know right from the beginning, this is not the God that we know through Jesus. God, the God that we know in Jesus is light. He is only good. There's no darkness in him at all. Now, this is an important starting point because it's going to set up the problem for us that's going to come in the next verse. And here's the problem. If God is good and only good, we got that part right. If God is good and only good, but what do I do about the darkness that I find in me? If God is good and only good, what do I do about the darkness that I find in me? It's like, oh, snap, right? John's getting real here. Look what he says in the next verse. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is, if we claim to have relationship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Do you see what John's doing here? John's point is that when you and I settle for darkness instead of light, when we settle for wrong instead of right, When we settle for evil instead of good, hatred instead of love, we are not walking in the light. John says it's a kind of lying because we are denying the truth. Now, what truth are we denying when we do this? Well, we're denying the truth that we just learned in the previous verse, that God is light, he is good. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, and let's use a football analogy. Let's say I tell you that I am a big Panthers fan. And let's just say, hypothetically, that you invite me over to your house this afternoon to watch the game. And we're going to have pulled pork, guacamole, queso, right? I know you haven't invited me yet, but that's okay. Just, just hypothetically, when you invite me over this afternoon, let's say that I show up. I'm, I say I'm a big Panthers fan, but let's say I show up to your house, but instead of wearing a Panthers jersey, let's say I show up wearing a New York Giants jersey. Do you see the conflict? I, I say that I'm walking in the light, but I'm really living in darkness. Do you, do you, do you see the analogy, right? And if I say I'm a Panthers fan, but I'm wearing darkness, then I am lying. It's like me choosing darkness, evil, chaos, instead of good. Now notice notice what John is not saying here. John is not saying that if you do something wrong, you are not a Christian. That is not his argument. 
Rather, what he is saying is that when you or I do something wrong, we are showing that God still has more work to do in us. That there are parts of our lives that God still needs to redeem, to heal. When you and I sin, it demonstrates that God is not done transforming us. That his truth, that he is light, that he is good, has not yet sunk deep into every corner of our soul and borne its fruit. And that's exactly where the next verse takes us. Look with me at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. God's plan, God's design is that we would walk in the light. But there's a problem. We kind of like darkness, don't we? I mean, there are just times in our life where, where we prefer darkness. We, we like to flirt with darkness because there's just some stuff in our lives that we would rather nobody else actually know about. And we're afraid that if, if we bring that into the light, that our shame and our, 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 our guilt will be exposed. And what will that mean for us? And so we live hiding with this shame, this, this darkness that we, we, we're afraid for anyone else to know about. John describes this predicament well in his gospel, one of his other writings. He writes this. He says, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, listen to this, for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And this, this is just kind of where we live, isn't it? Because we, we all got some stuff. We all got a past. We, we, right? we, we all got yesterday. <laughs> and there's some stuff from yesterday that I want to bring into the light. And this is just true of where we live. Now, when we have done something wrong, something we know to be wrong, the natural human response is to hide. It's to cover up because we're embarrassed. We're ashamed. Our natural response to shame, as it has been since the garden, is to hide from God, to hide from the light. But notice what God does. Just as with Adam and Eve in the garden, God refuses to leave us in our shame and hiding, but he comes in mercy and in grace looking for us. God gives us his invitation to walk in the light, to live our lives before him and before others in an honest way. And what enables us to do this, John gives us, what enables us to do it, this is the reassurance that God, excuse me, that John gives at the end of this verse. Look at what he says. That the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. How much sin does Jesus' blood purify us from? All. Interesting. All sin. Now, this word sin can, especially if you're new to the scriptures or new to church, this word sin, maybe if you've been around the church, can be a little bit confusing. But it's an ancient, comes from an ancient Greek word that simply means to miss the mark. You can think of it in terms of like archery or, or rifle target practice, right? Uh, if, when you're aiming at the target and you miss, hamartia, it means that you didn't hit the target, you, which is kind of like any time I've ever tried to do a target game. I don't think I've ever hit a target in my entire life. Uh, but, but imagine, so then, you know, this, this is kind of how you can think of this, that sinning is, is not hitting the target. You miss. 
So next time you're with your hunting buddies and one of them fires and misses, you should turn to him and say, it's okay, brother, we are all sinners. Okay, maybe don't do that. Um, Might get beat up. But look at here, here's what happens. This word sin, when it gets employed in the scriptures, gets used to describe spiritually missing the mark. When we miss God's target, God's mark for how we are to live. The times we choose darkness instead of light. We miss, we sin. And John is saying that it is the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, the blood of Jesus, that cleanses us, washes away whatever shame we have so that we don't have to hide anymore. We can walk in the light as he is in the light because Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. Now, sometimes shame uh, and hiding is our problem, but, but there's another problem that we can have too. Sometimes it's not hiding. Sometimes it's actually denying that is the problem that we face at this moment. And this is what John picks up on in his very next verse. Look at what he says here. If we claim to be without sin, denial, right? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What truth? The truth from verse 5, that God is light, he is good. And when we do this, we're living in a kind of denial. But, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One more time in case you missed it. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the truth, excuse me, and his word is not in us. What's he talking about here? What's all this lying, denying? What's well, kind of funny, in John's day, there was an interesting group of Christians that kind of had their theology wrong. They thought that when you became a Christian, you instantly became perfect and you never sinned again, which is probably true of you, right? I mean, how, that's true of us here? What you read? Okay, not good. So they thought that when you became a Christian, you instantly became perfect. But the problem was they didn't know what to do when in their own lives they kept sinning. And so some of them actually took this to this kind of radical conclusion. They decided to not get baptized until the very last hour of their life because they were afraid if they got baptized too early, they would would ruin their baptism and then they wouldn't have another chance. So they literally, I mean, there are stories of this where they're waiting. Like the guy's on his deathbed. He can barely breathe. They're like, all right, is this his last? No, no, he's got, okay, is this his last? All right, dunk him in the tank, you know, and then quickly pull him out. It was absurd. And it was a misunderstanding of God's grace. Here's the truth that John wants us to understand. Conversion, that is becoming a Christian, conversion is not sinless perfection. It is a commitment to a new direction. And this is John's big point. If we follow Jesus, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus takes care of our sin, all our sin. That's verse 7. He's already talked about that. You are purified by Jesus' blood. Your eternal consequences are covered. But this does not mean that you and I magically stop sinning. The truth is, this is just the truth about us. In spite of our best effort, in spite of our desire, we will continue settling for hatred instead of love. We will continue flirting with darkness. And we need to confess these things. John's point is not that we reach a place where we don't need Jesus anymore like a pair of training wheels that we discard. 
The goal of the Christian life for John is that we become more and more and more dependent upon the grace and mercy of Jesus, not less. And that's what walking in the light is all about. Because the closer we get to the light, the easier it is to see our imperfections. I was thinking about how to illustrate this concept, because this is a little bit tricky. And I was reminded of a, an embarrassing story that happened to me a couple months ago. Uh, some of y'all might not know this about me. I am red-green colorblind. Any other red-green colorblind folks? No. All right, I'm the only one. All right, here we go. So uh, what red-green colorblindness does not mean is it does not mean I can't recognize traffic lights, right? I've tried that excuse. It never works with the officer. I don't know why. It just never does. But uh, red-green colorblindness means that I struggle to discern between similar shades, so like, you know, dress socks, a black dress sock and a navy blue dress sock, like, I mean, it's just lost on me. Like, ho- there's no hope. I, I'm, all, I'm all over. Well, so one morning I woke up, uh, had to get up really early for a long day of meetings, and uh, I didn't want to turn on the, all the lights and disturb the whole household because I was leaving super early. So I kind of just had them on real dim. And I, I put on this black shirt. I wore it today just for this story. So I put on this black shirt. And I kind of looked in the mirror. Okay, I'm, I'm all right. And then I left the house. I had meetings all morning. I had lunch meetings, meetings all afternoon. And then when I got home, I came back into the bathroom where all the bright lights were on in full fashion. And I noticed on my shirt was strapped a black dress sock right here going all the way over my shoulder. And I realized that I had been wearing a black dress sock on my shirt since about 5.30 a.m. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know what was actually the, the, real, the worst part of this. I, what, one, what, what, was it bad that like I had actually done this all day and hadn't noticed? Or was it the fact that nobody had the courage to tell me I was wearing a black dress sock, right? I guess they thought, well, maybe that's one of those things Californians do. I don't know what, I don't know what to say about that, you know. You see, this is, this is just the truth of us, isn't it? We need the light to see our imperfections. And the closer we get to the light, the closer we draw to God's goodness, the more we will see our need for his mercy and grace. And I just want to make a little confession just to kind of tell you the truth. You might not know this about pastor, but this has been my story. When I first became a Christian, as a teenager, man, there was some stuff that God had to deal with. There were some obvious sins, right, uh, that anybody could have seen. I saw them, everybody saw them, and God dealt with those. But the longer I have walked with Jesus, the more I have begun to see the depth of my depravity and just how desperately I need his mercy and grace. My journey with sin has been one of growth, but it has been also one of deeper and deeper awareness. That's what it means to walk in in the light. You see, this is what confession is all about, which is why John calls us to it. In those moments of walking in the light, of realizing my own perfections, this becomes my prayer. God, would you forgive me of this? And would you bring your light, your goodness, into this part of my life? Not denial, not hiding, but confessing. So what does John think about all this sin stuff? This is kind of his final move in our passage today. What does he think about all this sin stuff? Well, he gives us a summary in this next verse. He says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does John think we should be cavalier about sin in our lives? Oh, it's no big deal. That's covered by... No. He holds up this beautiful image of perfection. I write this to you so that you will not sin. That is our aim. That is our goal. And then in the very next breath, John gets real. But since we are all going to struggle, here's what I want you to remember. Here's what I want you to know. We all need grace. We all need help. And in the very next breath, he gives us an anchor for that hope. He says this. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's he talking about? God's people in the Old Testament understood this sin problem. So each year, they did something a little bit unusual. They took an unblemished lamb. That's a lamb with no imperfections. And the priest would come, and and the priest would lay his hand on the head of that lamb, symbolically laying on that perfect lamb lamb, the sins of all God's people. And then they would sacrifice that lamb as a way of saying, God, we know our sins deserve death, but we call upon you for grace and mercy. It symbolized atonement, the removal of sins. And what Christians have, have come to recognize and believe is that Jesus is the completion of that sacrificial system. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, John says. And so you see, our hope, our salvation is not ultimately found in our own perfection, that we can somehow get good enough where we no longer need Jesus. Our hope is found solely in his perfection, in his life that was given for ours. He is our advocate. He is the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice that takes away our sins. And this, and you might not know this, maybe no one's ever told you this, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. Not that I will try harder, do my best to become a good person. That is noble and worthy, but that is not fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that we have placed our hand on the head of Jesus and said, Jesus, my only hope is in the atoning work of your perfect life. That is it. That's what it means to be a Christian. And it is through that simple confession that we can know can know that we have eternal life. Jesus, I'm trusting in your perfection, your goodness, your light for my life and my salvation. If you've never actually taken that step, you can do that today. In just a moment, I'm going to give us some space to talk with God. And maybe that's something you want to confess to him today. Now, why would John spend his entire chapter talking about this idea of light Well, he certainly wants us to know that God is light, that God is good. But he also wants us to know that the invitation to us is that we are called to be people of light. See, the truth is that most people in our world today will not see God's power in the way that Moses saw it or in the way that Elijah saw it. Most people in our world today are going to see God's power because of the difference it makes in the lives of his followers through the healing, the goodness, and the growth 
that God's light brings into our lives. That is how others see God's goodness. It's just like the song we learned as kids. Do you know this song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. Oh, you do know this song. I didn't know if y'all knew this one. Okay, I thought we might sing along. You do know it. Here's what that song means. You ready for this? Here's what that song means. You and I are given the opportunity to be light bearers and light reflectors of a God who is light and a God who is only good. Which means that when you choose light instead of darkness, love instead of hatred, mercy instead of vengeance, you are shining God's light. When you give sacrificially, love unconditionally, serve with humility, listen empathetically, you are shining God's light. When you care for the poor and those in need, when you, when you defend those who cannot defend themselves, when you fight for justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, you are shining God's light. And wherever and whenever you bring goodness into this dark, dark world, you become a person of light that's reflecting the God of light who is a good, gracious, and loving God. A light has entered the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And my friend, that is good news. Well, that's where our series is headed in the next few weeks. I hope you'll plan to join us. John's got some really big whoppers in store for us that you won't want to miss. But today, I just want to end with a prayer and a question. What role does confession play in your relationship with God? What role? Maybe today as we've been talking and reflecting on John's letter, maybe Something has come to the surface, something that you've been hiding for a long time and you're just tired of carrying that shame and that guilt. What if you just confess that to God today? Maybe there's an area of life that you've been in total denial of. and You're like, I I just can't keep pretending. I just can't keep lying. What would it look like today if you said, God, I, I just want to tell you the truth. I want to confess this to you. Or maybe there's, there's an area of your life where it just feels like darkness is winning. And you want to say, God, I, I need your goodness. I need your power. I need your light to come into my darkness. Jesus, will you meet me in this place today? What confession might you make to him today? What request? Let's pray.